Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine, your window on the universe. You can download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast just about everywhere, including iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts, Bytes.com, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. The show's also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. Coming up on Spacetime, a massive galaxy cluster discovered by citizen scientists. Discovery of a new type of meteorite linked to an ancient asteroid collision. And the Mars Curiosity rover unexpectedly shuts down. All that and more coming up on Spacetime. Welcome to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Two volunteer participants in an international citizen science project have discovered a rare galaxy cluster, which has now been named in their honour. The pair pieced together the huge C-shaped structure, located some 1.2 billion light-years away, from much smaller images of cosmic radio waves shown to them as part of the web-based Radio Galaxy Zoo project. The discovery of what is now known as the matoni terentiev cluster RGZCL J0823.2 plus 0333 is reported in the monthly notices of the Royal Astronomical Society, with the two volunteers included as co-authors. The study's lead author, Dr Julie Banfield from the Australian National University, says the discovery surprised the astronomers running the project because the volunteers had found something that no one else thought would be possible. Astronomers have classified the newly discovered object as a wide-angle tail radio galaxy, so named after the C-shaped tail of highly energetic jets of plasma which are being ejected from it. It's part of a previously unreported sparsely populated galaxy cluster. And as it turns out, it's one of the biggest ever found. Indications are this galaxy might have had two distinct episodes of activity during its lifetime, with more quiet times lasting about a million years in between. While the unusual bent shape of wide-angle tail radio galaxies have proven to be an excellent beacon for the detection of galaxy clusters, they'll always be difficult to detect using just computer algorithms, which is where citizen scientists can play a huge role. More than 10,000 volunteers joined in with Radio Galaxy Zoo, classifying over 1.6 million images from NASA's Wide Field Infrared Survey Explorer Telescope and the Very Large Radio Array Telescope in New Mexico. The project includes a massive data set, far too big for any individual or small team to plough through. However, by using the resources of citizen scientists to help out, the research team have been able to already cover more than 60% of the data. Through big projects such as Radio Galaxy Zoo, citizen science has established itself as a powerful research tool for astronomy, especially looking at future challenges such as Australia's EMU survey. EMU stands for the Evolutionary Map of the Universe. It's a project which is being undertaken with the Australian Square Kilometre Array Pathfinder, ASCAP, and its South African counterpart, Meerkap. 
Julie Banfield says expanding on projects such as Radio Galaxy Zoo will be key to finding these unusual structures and studying galaxy clusters. Discovery happened within the first week of launch of the project, so back in 2013. Two citizen scientists noticed something in the image that they were shown on the internet, and when they went into external databases, so things that are on the archive, they noticed that this was an actual much larger feature, which came to our attention and we decided we should investigate this further and it turned out to be actually much bigger than we first thought it was. It's starting to travel in towards this galaxy cluster so it's this area where a bunch of galaxies are starting to come together and merge and we see this nice giant C-shaped structure that indicates that this is actually what's going on and because of that we decided that we would name the galaxy cluster after them because they discovered it in the first place and it's turned out to be really great. Now this is all part of the galaxy Galaxy Zoo project? Yeah, so the Galaxy Zoo project is a citizen science project that is under the Zooniverse umbrella. So back in 2007, Galaxy Zoo came along and revolutionized astronomy in terms of citizen science. And Radio Galaxy Zoo came on board in 2013 when we went live and it's been extremely successful since day one. It's not just space. The zoo projects looked at coral reefs and all sorts of things, hasn't it? Oh yeah, so they, they have everything from transcribing ancient tablets and Greek tablets and texts to understanding marine weather to looking at the coral reefs to looking for planets and then out further into the universe where Radio Galaxy Zoo comes in. How far away is this galaxy cluster, this new one that's been discovered? Uh, it's, oh, that's a good question. You can do it in redshift if okay. you want, I can convert. Oh, yeah, okay, the redshift is 0. 0.0897, and it's the radio emission, the radio emitting regions are coming from an E0-type host galaxy, so that's a very round, spheroidal, elliptical-type galaxy, which is mainly made up of old stars. An old red galaxy it would look like to us if we could actually see it if it wasn't so far away. Yes, exactly. One of those red dead galaxies. Yeah. The only thing in the radio image that we can see is the radio emitting regions from that host galaxy, whereas the other galaxy members of the cluster are only really visible in the infrared or in the optical images that we've been able to get. Okay, so that's how you were able to determine it's a C-type shape, the, the cluster itself. Yes, it's brought from the radio emission as the galaxy is actually falling in towards the cluster. So it's, it's like when you're driving in your car with, in your convertible, which we all have, where you don't have the lid and the, the wind is blowing in your face and your hair is flying backwards. So that's sort of what's happening is that the galaxy is falling in towards the cluster and the winds of the intergalactic medium, the intercluster medium, are essentially blowing back the radio emission to create this nice, lovely, giant C-shaped we see. And what are you actually looking at, plasma jets? Um, so we're looking at synchrotron radiation, so that's, so that's relativistic electrons, electrons yeah. Yeah, as they um, accelerate around magnetic fields. Um, that's the frequency at which we're observing. Do they look different in those sort of redshifts? They look different in, in different properties. So if you go out to really high redshifts, so redshifts over one, different features start to play a role. So objects in the radio would appear to be much smaller on on your images, so they wouldn't be as big as we see this one, just because of the projection effects. 
but then you'll get a lot of molecular gas and a lot of x-ray emission that you start to pick up. Whereas in the closer redshifts, you actually get to see the cluster members and the interactions between everything. Our data comes from the legacy surveys of the Very Large Array, which would be the NVSS and the VLA first survey. So this is mainly a northern targeted project at the moment, but we're ramping up to get ready to bring in the ASCAP and the Meerkat SKA Pathfinder type data, which is more southern hemisphere. So there'll be a lot new, cool things to look at. We actually have the Australia Telescope Compact Array follow-up data on it. So we we can see it from the Southern Hemisphere, but because the Southern Hemisphere isn't as well studied as the Northern Hemisphere, there isn't much yet in the radio regime for us to follow up on. So that will all change when ASCAP comes online in Meerkat. Okay, so uh, Narrabri had a look at it as well, did they? Yes, they did. Uh, So we have some data on that, which we're processing at the moment, and we also have some more follow-up with the Very Large Array. So with both of the telescopes that are involved in the project, we got follow-up time to look more closely at the physics and the physical properties of why this thing is as big as it is. How big is it from what you can determine? Um, It's a galaxy plus, huge, but yeah, how huge? Yeah. So the data that we currently have, if you were to follow the trajectory, the whole entire C shape, it would be over one megaparsec. Okay, so that's uh, roughly three and a half million light years. Yes. 3.26 million light years, yeah. Yeah. So it's um, it's one of the largest known radio galaxies at the moment. It's not the largest at the moment, but it ranks in the top three, three to five. How important is the citizen science aspect of this? Without the citizen scientists, our, we wouldn't be able to understand the radio sky. Currently, computers aren't smart enough to classify and identify these radio galaxies, including objects of this size. So in a way... We're working with the machines to try and tackle the large data that's coming out. There will always be the need for citizen science in astronomy. And even if machines do get smarter, we will still need eyes on the sky to look for these patterns, to look for these big objects. And so the aspect of citizen science is extremely important, and I don't think it will ever go away in astronomy. Jodrell Bank did the same thing with the radio pulsar survey. They made quite a few new pulsar discoveries, an awful lot, in fact. Yes, no, that's very true. Yep, not only that, they've made a lot of planet discoveries as well in the Citizen Science Planet Hunter project. So, yeah, citizen science is extremely important, and I don't think it will ever lose its importance in astronomy. That's Dr Julie Banfield from the ARC Centre of Excellence for All Sky Astrophysics at the Mount Stromlo Observatory, which is part of the Australian National University. Scientists have discovered a new type of never-before-seen meteorite, A report of the journal Nature Communications claims the newly found space rock appears to be from the missing partner of a massive asteroid collision which occurred some 470 million years ago. That collision sent debris falling to Earth over a million years and may have influenced the great diversification of life which occurred during the Ordovician period. One of the asteroids involved in the collision is known to be the source of L-chondrite meteorites, still the most common type of meteorite known. But the identity of the other object, the one which hit it, has remained a mystery, at least until now. The ancient meteorite, named Ost-65, was dug up in Sweden's Thorsberg Quarry, already a source for over 100 fossil meteorites. 
One of the study's authors, Professor Qingzhao Jin from the University of California, Davies, describes the discovery as very exciting because of the more than 50,000 meteorites collected so far worldwide, nobody's seen anything like this rock before. The 10-centimetre-wide grey rock was found in a pristine layer of fossil-rich pink limestone. OS 65 is called a fossil meteorite because the original rock is almost completely altered, except for a few hardy minerals, spinels and chromite. Analyses of the chromium and oxygen isotopes in the surviving minerals allow the researchers to conclude that the OST-65 meteorite is chemically distinct from all other known meteorite types. By measuring how long OST-65 was exposed to cosmic rays, the team were able to establish that it travelled in space for about a million years before falling to Earth 470 million years ago. This timeline's important because it matches up with the Elkondrite meteorites found in the same quarry, leading the authors to suggest that this rock is indeed a fragment from the other object involved in the Ordovician collision. That original object may well have been destroyed in the collision, but it's also possible its remains are still out there in space. Scientists think about 100 times as many meteorites slammed into Earth during the Ordovician period compared to today, thanks to this massive collision in the main asteroid belt between Mars and Jupiter. This rain of meteorites may well have opened new environmental niches for organisms, thus boosting both the diversity and complexity of life on Earth. The new findings further strengthen suspicions that meteorite falls on Earth don't represent the full range of rocks now drifting around through the solar system. Physicists have confirmed the existence of new members of a subatomic group of particles called tetraquarks. Scientists at Syracuse University were able to confirm the existence of four of the rare exotic particles using the Large Hadron Collider Beauty, or LHCB, detector at CERN, the European Organisation for Nuclear Research. A report in the journal Physical Review Letters says the rare four-quark particles have been named X4140, X4274, X4500 and X4700. The names are governed by their masses, mega-electron volts, referring to the amount of energy an electron gains after being accelerated by a volt of electricity. It's the energy configuration of the quarks which gives each particle its mass and identity. Quarks are elemental subatomic particles, fundamental constituents of matter that, as far as we know, can't be broken down into anything smaller than themselves. A tetraquark is a particle made up of two quarks and two antiquarks. Tetraquarks, and by extension pentaquarks containing five quarks, are considered exotic because they have more than the usual allotment of two or three quarks. Protons and neutrons, which are usually found in the nucleus of atoms, are made up of three quarks, held together by gluons while mesons, which are found in cosmic rays, consists of a quark and an antiquark. One of the study's authors, Professor Thomas Skornicki, says the new discovery is helping his team distinguish various theoretical models for particles. Even though all four of these particles contain the same quark composition, each has a unique internal structure, a unique mass, and also a unique set of quantum numbers. Quantum numbers describe each particle's subatomic properties. It was back in 2014 that Skornicki confirmed the existence of the world's first charged tetraquark candidate called Z4430+. A year earlier, he and PhD student Ben Gui determined the quantum numbers for the first neutral heavy tetraquark candidate X3872. Skornicki says the measurement of all four particles represents the largest single one of its kind to date. 
While most particles contain two or three quarks, such as protons, neutrons and mesons, Skwernicki and others in the past decade have discovered particles with four and five quarks. In fact, last summer he was part of a team that discovered two rare pentaquark states. According to the standard model of particle physics, there are six kinds of quarks whose intrinsic properties cause them to be grouped into pairs with unusual names, such as up and down, charm and strange, and top and bottom. The particles that Skwernicki and colleagues study have two charm quarks and two strange quarks. Charm and strange are the third and fourth most massive of all quarks. The fact that all four quarks in the new family are heavy is noteworthy. That's because the heavier the quark, the smaller the corresponding particle it creates. Evidence for the 4140 particle first appeared in 2009 at the Fermi National Accelerator Laboratory near Chicago, but the observation wasn't confirmed until three years later at CERN. Scientists studied the debris created in particle collisions to better understand the building blocks of matter and the forces controlling them. NASA's Mars Curiosity rover shut down unexpectedly over the weekend. The car-sized six-wheeled robot suddenly put itself into a safe standby mode on July 2nd. Mission managers at NASA's Jet Propulsion Laboratory in Pasadena, California brought Curiosity back online on July the 9th. But they're still trying to determine exactly what triggered the initial problem. About the one thing they're sure of at this stage is that it wasn't Howard Wallowitz trying to impress a girl. Curiosity is now communicating with ground controllers and is in a stable state. Mission managers think the most likely cause was a software issue in how some image data is transferred on board the vehicle. Until they know for sure, they're going to simply avoid using that mode of transfer, which involves writing images from some camera memories to files on the rover's main computer. It's not the first time this has happened. Curiosity has entered safe mode three times previously, all during 2013. The Mars Curiosity rover landed in the red planet's Gale crater in August 2012. During its first year on Mars, the mission achieved its primary goal by determining that more than three billion years ago, this region of Mars had freshwater lakes and rivers with environmental conditions well suited to supporting life, that is, if life ever existed on Mars. In its continuing investigations, Curiosity is learning more about the ancient warm and wet environment which once existed on Mars and how and when the red planet evolved into what today is a far less habitable freeze-dry desert. Virgin Galactic is about to start test flying its newest space plane, the Unity, which replaces the original Spaceship 2 Enterprise, which crashed into the Mojave Desert back in 2014. The first atmospheric test flights will begin next month, with full suborbital space flights beginning in 2017. The winged spacecraft will be slung below the wing of its White Knight 2 mothership, a twin-bodied four-engine jet, which will launch from a conventional runway and carry Unity to altitudes of about 50,000 feet. The mothership then releases the spacecraft, which ignites its single hybrid rocket engine and climbs at 4,000 kilometres per hour to altitudes of over 361,000 feet, the official start of space. There, it'll provide tourists with several minutes of weightlessness and spectacular suborbital views of the Earth, before feathering its tail section and gliding back to the planet's surface, landing on a conventional runway. 
Although no firm date's been announced yet for the beginning of passenger services, tickets are already selling at about $250,000 per seat. The company plans to build at least two more space planes. On October the 31st, 2014, the first spaceship, VSS Enterprise, suffered an in-flight breakup during a powered flight test, resulting in a crash killing one pilot and injuring the other. The crash is believed to have been caused by the premature deployment of the feathering mechanism, which is normally used to aid in the descent. The Enterprise was still in powered ascent when the feathering mechanism suddenly deployed, causing the spacecraft's disintegration two seconds later. And that's the show for now. You can subscribe and download Spacetime as a free twice-weekly podcast through iTunes, Stitcher, Bytes.com, Pocket Casts, SoundCloud, Audio Boom, and from SpacetimeWithStuartGary.com. For more, you can follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. Just search for Spacetime with Stuart Gary. This show is also broadcast coast-to-coast across the United States on Science360 Radio by the National Science Foundation in Washington, D.C. You've been listening to Spacetime with Stuart Gary. Subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, Pocket Casts or Audio Boom. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com. Spacetime is brought to you in collaboration with Australian Sky and Telescope magazine. This month, exploring NASA's Juno mission to the King of Planets. 